namo atasa bhagavato arahato samasambhutasa namo atasa bhagavato arahato samasambhutasa namo atasa bhagavato arahato samasambhutasa bhutantamang sangang namasami It's a useful question to ask why why do we meditate? Why do we practice? Why do we why do we make the effort? Why do we come on retreat? Why do we sit quietly for forty five minutes and deal with the kinds of things that you have to deal with? Why do we do it? And you know, the reflections that I offer are not things that I'm asking you to believe, but just asking to see if they resonate with your own experiences, to see whether or not they're true or not. There's a lot of things that we experience in our life that are really lovely. Friendships and family, connections, beauty, joy, successes. There's a lot of pleasure that we can experience in life. But there's also an awful lot of sadness and grief and there's also an awful lot of loss that we can experience because when we touch into what's actually going on, we can recognize that the things that we like, most of them are not stable. And so, you know, we practice, and one of the first things that comes when we come on meditation retreat or when we spend some time meditating is we recognize that there's a kind of jumble of thoughts and thinking and we're all over the place and we can't focus and we're not sure how we're feeling or we're not sure what's going on in our body and this is sort of like, you know, a kind of monkey mind that we have to deal with. And then after some persistence and some patience and some application of effort, things begin to settle. Like the apple juice settles. So the sediment falls to the bottom and becomes really clear. And in this clarity, then there's all kinds of pleasures and joys and happinesses that we can have as we begin to just connect with the incredible beauty that's around us. The leaves or the sound of a bird in the canyon or the deer resting under the tree quietly you know, or the smile of a person passing just spontaneous and uncontrived and you know flowers it's just it's such a pleasure for me to see flowers in the shrine here just so incredibly rare to have flowers in the shrine here the colors and how beautiful and how lovely it is to have something to offer you know so beautiful You know, we can sit down and and look at the colors in the food or taste the food. You know, so much of the time we don't even taste the food because there's like, there's 10,000 things we've got to do and we're thinking and we're planning and we're talking on the telephone at the same time and, and we don't taste the food. And yet when we sit down and we become quiet and we listen inwardly, we can just taste the food. And it's amazing to just to be able to taste the food the food, a whole meal to taste the food. Or to have enough, to finish a meal and to know that you've had enough to eat and to recognize how rare that is, you know, in this world. I think Kormilakshi Soma was saying that I think 40% people are the privileged people who have enough to eat for a meal in the day. That's a lot of people who don't, 60%. 
60% of 6 billion is a lot. You know? So we have enough to eat, and like how much, how often do we, we can even register we've had enough to eat? You know, whether we just get that, that there's enough to eat. You know, we go through this morning, it was 22 degrees outside when I looked at the thermometer. And I had enough on, I was warm enough. And isn't it wonderful to be warm enough when it's 22 degrees outside? You know, or to have a heat inside that I can turn on. We've got heaters inside. I can turn the heaters on inside. You know, so that when the mind begins to settle down and still, then we can look at the kind of normal things that we experience and feel, oh, wow. You know, it's incredible. It's just incredible. There's enough food. There's enough warmth. My body is healthy enough to do what I need to do. It's incredible. And there's just a kind of like deep, spontaneous joy that can emerge, which is touching these very simple things that we have contact with every single day of our life. You know? But normally we don't notice because there's so much going on that we don't have time to notice or we don't... We don't pay attention to that. So one of the real beauties of meditation is, is, is that the beauty and the joy that's all around us and in us and, you know, the, the kind of the quality of our life, we can wake up to that and, and begin to live where we don't take it for granted that we can walk or that we can see or that we can hear, we can taste, we can be touched and touch. You know, we don't we don't take it for granted when we're present with what's going on. We can we can feel all of these things and and wake up to the beauty of this simple joy. And then as we meditate a little bit more and we can touch into some of the Brahma Viharas, you know, we can begin to get a feeling for the quality of loving kindness that's the other side of mindfulness. And we can see, you know, what an incredible contrast that is from the kind of harsh, critical, judgmental, nasty monster that usually is on, on all the time, you know. Slandering and criticizing and belittling and shaming. It's endless, 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 you know. And then we can have a couple of moments of kindness where that's actually not happening. The opposite is happening. There's a warmth, there's a welcome, there's a respectfulness, there's a something that's really gracious, that's generous, that's gentle, but also very clear. And what an incredible difference it is to have a feeling of how to live with that, rather than this incessant, complaining, critical, judgmental monster. You know, it's on our shoulder, chewing on our ear all of the time. You know. And then we can get a feeling, well, my goodness, you know, what it's like to live like that for myself, and then what it's like to live like that and with other people, you know, where we're not just seeing immediately that the terrible things about everybody at the first instant, but we can begin to touch into, well, you know, this is a human being that feels, that thinks, that has, has dreams, that, that, that has sorrow, that has grief. I was on a trip to Crestone, and um, I was in an, an incredible lot of pain, and so I was wanting to go to a hot springs, and so it worked out that I could go to a hot springs, and so which was which was so wonderful because the pain was just like through and through, so the hot spring was really helpful. 
And so I was finished and I was waiting for my people to come and we could go back together to where we were staying. And, you know, I was just waiting. And a woman who was behind the counter talking with some friends who came in. She looked like 33, young woman, you know. Bright, you know. Lovely demeanor, lovely countenance. And, you know, I'm just listening to her tell this story. And her husband, who was like similar age with her, um, had had some kind of diagnosis of cancer and they couldn't find the primary. And it, it, it had spread throughout his body, you know. It's like, you know, I look at this person, there's just no way. There was no way. There was no way by looking at her that I would know that this is the kind of grief that she's carrying. Just would have no idea by looking at her. And that kind of uncertainty, you know. So, you know, we look at people and we see sometimes just something so superficial. And yet when we open up to, a, you know, what it is to be human, we touch what it is for our own self to be human and begin to get a feeling for what it might be for somebody else. Then, then we can have some... I don't know, more scope, more perspective, more patience, more capacity for the reality of what it is to be human. So the heart then begins to kind of be full of these other qualities. You know, somebody sent a bunch of pictures of Obama playing with kids and doing stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think a president does, you know, being on the telephone and holding a football under his arm and talking with his feet up and laughing, just roariously laughing, just like roaring laughing, you know. You know, with these fabulous pictures with kids, he's, he's really wonderful with kids. He's just wonderful with kids. And you can see, you know, he has a lot of joy in other people's joy. Just incredible joy in other people's joy. Or I saw something not just a few days ago. It was... It was... Uh, Desmond Tutu. This luminous, twinkly, twinkly, twinkly eyes, twinkly eyes. Saying, like, with this wonder of, like, a, a face of a, of a young child, we're all family, you know. You know, and it's, it's kind of like openness. And so what it is when we begin to touch this, you know, this sense that it's just not me against everybody else in the world who are out against me, you know. And there's a sense of we're actually in this ship together. And this human ship of the kind of soft belly, the rough and tumble, the hurting, the aching, the, the rawness of it, the joy of it, the, the pleasures of it, the sadnesses of it, the losses. We're in this together. You know, we're in it together. And so the mind settles and the heart begins to touch some of these qualities that allow us to feel a kind of warmth, connection, joy. And then maybe some more settledness with the kind of normal vicissitudes that we experience. And the kind of normal settledness then gives rise to more ability to deal with not just the normal vicissitudes, but the stuff that really scares us to death, you know. 
the stuff that we don't want to look at, the stuff that we don't want to know, the things that we've kept under wraps, the things that we we have spent much of our life running away from, don't want to know. And then we can come and we can look at this stuff and look it in the eye, face it. And what happens? When I was in Australia, I was there for couple years and I was on a retreat, three month retreat. I was in a tiny kuti. I love my kuti. I so loved my kuti. It was tiny. It was like, I don't know, six feet by seven and a half feet. You know, it was tiny. And it had windows on one side and it was out in this spectacular place. So I could see nothing built around me. All I had was like this hills and, and and eucalyptus and rocks and I was I just loved my kuti. I loved my kuti. It was wonderful kuti. And I went through a period of just being frightened. Absolutely terrified. Just terrified. And I'd take my alms bowl down to receive food and that was the only contact I had with people was like the, the 45 seconds it took to receive uh, food in my bowl and I'd go back up to my kuti and I'd go back up to my kuti and I was shaking I mean I was shaking in my shoes it was like just let me get through another day it's like help me get through another day I was just petrified and it was like you know I didn't even know why I was so scared I was so scared I didn't even want to look at why I was so scared and then after a period of time there were some monks that were visiting and one monk was staying for a little while and other monks came because the one monk had done a lot of building of monasteries and they wanted to ask his advice. So they asked me about my experience with the bear. And, you know, they had heard it had happened and stuff, but, you know, his was a meditator. He wasn't, he wasn't interested in the drama or the story. He was interested in the mind states. So he asked me very, very precise and very specific questions about what were the kind of conditions, mind states that gave rise from the transformation of fear to what was, for me, very profound surrender. And I remembered, you know, very, very clearly, I remembered the different mind states that were present that helped me focus on the fear. Now that fear was quite something, that was quite some fear. You know, I don't think I've ever experienced anything quite like it. It was just, you know, huge. It was infinite. It didn't have edges to it. It was all-consuming fear. And yet the experience was is that the fear transitioned to complete surrender. So this monk was asking questions. What were the mind states? What happened? What led up to that? What were the conditions that gave rise to the experience of fear transforming to total release? What was it? And when I remembered... I brought forward those same mind states to the fear that I was experiencing and looked at it right square on. And it evaporated. I was terrified of going crazy. And I was so terrified of going crazy, I was afraid to admit that I was terrified of going crazy. It's like somehow if I admitted that that was actually what I was afraid of, that that's what was going to actually happen. 
You know, I was living in a remote place. It took two hours to get to a city. There was one car that left once a week. The road was a 45-minute road that separated your ligaments from your tendons, your bones, because it was so bumpy and riveted. You know, there wasn't a lot of people there. And there wasn't anybody there who really had much depth in meditation. I was the most senior person in terms of practice. People were kind-hearted, but very inexperienced meditators. And something had just opened up for me to look at. And I was scared. You know? I'd never been in a place that was that remote before for that long a period of time. So little contact. So these kind of fundamental, primal fears that we have of death, of insanity, of not belonging anywhere, of not knowing where our home is, of, of being alone at times when we need to be with other people. They're fears that we have. And, you know, a lot of times we spend an awful lot of time just kind of pushing and running and not attending to them because they're frightening. So Lenore and I have been reading um, sections from the Deepama book. And, you know, one of her family members came to her the day that her son had died. And Deepama was ferocious with her. Absolutely ferocious with her. She wasn't tender and grandmotherly and kind and soft and sweet. She was ferocious with her. Everything is going to die. Everything you have is going to go. Everything you own, you cannot take it with you. Everybody that we love, we have to let go of. Every memory that we've had that have brought us joy, we have to let go of. Every physical attribute that brings us a sense of safety and a sense of shelter is not something that we can ultimately rely on and hold on to. At some point, we're going to have to let go of it. And what happens then when we are willing to do this, to actually look at everything that we hold on to and come to terms with the fact that we have to let go and let go, is rather than becoming miserable and depressed and forlorn and shut yourself up into a room and not want to have anything to do with anybody, it's like the prisoners of the heart are released. We set ourselves free. And that kind of freedom is a freedom that does not depend on the weather or the politics. It doesn't depend on the economy. It doesn't depend on our health. It doesn't depend on our family. It doesn't depend on our loved ones. It's radical. Absolutely radical. Radical freedom. And so when we have glimpses or tastes or touches or realizations of this, it means that we can enter back into the world, but in a different way. We're in it, but not of it. We're walking through it, but somehow not colored by it in the same way that we were before. 
we are in relationship with ourselves, with each other. But our relationship is a relationship of loving, of generosity, of caring, of kindness, of patience, of wisdom. It's not a relationship of codependence. The love that we long for is where we're resting. It's not in what we have or who we are in terms of the positions that we have. It's where we rest. And that knowing brings us back into the world to allow us to touch and to move and to work with all of the things that keep us from knowing that. The doubts, the fears, the confusions, the distractions, the preoccupations, the proliferations, the confusions. Picking up what needs to be picked up with, developing what needs to be developed and letting go that no longer serves. The mind's nature is free. It's clear. It's luminous. It pervades everything. So why meditate? It's a relevant question, important question, a useful question. And I think also what happens for many of us is, is, is that we get kind of habituated to meditation being a particular way and it loses a kind of vitality or responsiveness or aliveness. And so it's sort of like kind of going through the motions where we have some idea about what meditation is and so we sit down and we go into mode and there's very little nourishment, there's very little juice, there's very little joy that comes because we're in mode rather than responsive to what's actually going on. And so, you know, it's natural, you know, over years that we have periods of time where it, 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 it's helpful to revitalize our meditation practice because it's not something that's alive or, 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 or renewing or inspiring or encouraging. The clarity that's emerging from it has somehow come lost some luster. And, you know, for me, there have been times when I have been doing really very intensive, very formal practice, and there's been times when I have completely disbanded all of the external structures and just allowed intuition to emerge without structure and see what happens with both. And sometimes what's needed is to have a lot of formal structure where there's clear times of sitting and walking and a clear style of practice that I'm engaged with and committed to. In other times, I need to let go of all of that and just abide in the present moment and trust what's emerging and begin to feel my way into a responsive way of relating to what's happening rather than to put myself into some kind of a structure as if the structure is going to be the thing that's going to do it for me. And there were times when I was doing that where I was, you know, really 
on edge because I had completely identified meditation as being this formal thing with a formal structure with a formal meditation technique and as I was dismantling those things I felt like I can't possibly be meditating if I'm not having any of these external things in place and yet what I began to learn was how to trust an intuitive responsiveness that was alive and vital and clear without relying on a structure or a technique as a thing that was going to be the thing that was going to let me know I was okay doing it. And so I've done both. And I advocate both. Because both are needed at different times, depending on where you're at. You know, sometimes I tell people, don't meditate. Sit down and don't meditate for 45 minutes. Don't meditate. So what's really needed is very, very much dependent on where a person is at in terms of what's the kind of right reflection and where a person needs to move to shore up the places that are obscuring their ability to see clearly and to move into more depth. It has to be that we have to be able to feel what we feel. It has to be that way. And we come into a different way of relating to what we feel. Through feeling what we feel. So when we touch the places that scare us, with a kind of gentleness, with an openness, a receptivity, we settle in our own skin in a different way. It gives us confidence. We can meet arises, even if we don't know what's the next thing that's going to arise. I have some real genuine concern about, you know, the state of affairs that this world is in right now and what's happening with the environment and the kind of lack of cohesive response to anything that makes sense to me about what's going on. So I'm constantly open and looking for what other ways I can do to bring the pieces together that would support movement in the right direction in that way. But I trust the practice. And I trust that the more we endeavor to wake up out of our own small sufferings and middle-sized sufferings and large-sized sufferings, the more we are a force of goodness to support others doing the same thing. And the more there are, there is a collective force of people who are willing and able and interested to do that, the more we will be able to meet the larger challenges that face us. Because our minds are open, they're pliable, they're not fixed, they're not rigid, they're not stuck in positions or views. We're able to hold the spectrum from the transcendent, you know, to the physical, the imminent, the relational. We can hold it open. We're not excluding anything. We're just present, alive, responsive, and with the whole thing. You know, it's it's been interesting being back in the in the States these last three years both my reflection of the culture that I'm in, but also my reflection of my own internalization of some of these values, and to see the level of fear that arises 
around the possibility of not being comfortable. You know how deeply disturbing that is. And I've had my own journey with that. In terms of, you know, is there going to be enough food? Is there going to be enough this? Is there going to be enough that? You know, or what happens if I can't live in the place because there's too much fumes? Will I be okay in a tent when it's 20 degrees outside? You know, will I be okay? And yet when I when I meet it, when I walk with it, when I work with it, there's a way that emerges. I, I can't be in the tent when it's 20 degrees outside. I sleep in two sleeping bags with a hot water bottle. I'm fine. <laughs> you know, something happens and we fix the fumes, you know. And if we didn't fix the fumes, we would figure out something that would work. You know, there's a sense of... There's a sense of... There's a way that works, that merges out of the unknowing, that having to up all of the time. There's a way that emerges. I can't predict what it's going to look like, but I trust that a way emerges. But there's also had to be an incredible vigilance with watching the stories that I tell myself and where I'm placing my attention. Because, you know, I'm not beyond getting freaked out. You know? or feeling really despondent, or feeling discouraged. And so I have to watch where I place my attention, and what I do with that. And it releases. So I keep coming back to the fact that I have faith in the practice. And there isn't anything that I have ever lived through that I can't bring to the practice. And there's more joy, there's more peace, there's more contentment, there's more equanimity, there's more feeling comfortable in my own skin, and there's more touching the sense of this luminous, clear mind that is nature, that is what we're made out of, that pervades everything and everyone. You know, one of the things about the story of Deepama, you know, her personal story, was is that she suffered so much, she got to a place where she had nothing left to lose. And so she can say unequivocally, the only real point and purpose of life is to wake up. So that was her distillation, based on her experience and based on her realization of what is the difference between what it feels like before you let go and after you let go. So one of the things that becomes really important to bring into practice is what is right effort. And one of the images that I brought with me from the very beginning of when I was introduced to meditation was the, the image of two teachers that I had at the same time when I was at UC Santa Cruz. One was Herman Blake, who was a professor of sociology who grew up in Harlem with his mother 
holding vigil at night so that the children wouldn't get eaten by rats. And, you know, in his world, if you ended up as a butler, that was a really great thing because at least you weren't in jail and you had enough food. And most of his brothers were in jail or shot. And, you know, he had a... He, he, he would tell stories and he spoke with passion. It was like his blood was on fire, you know. I love listening to Herman speak. It was incredible listening to him speak. You know, talking about the stories of the civil rights movement and the things that people were up to and what they did and what motivated them. You know, the suffering was so incredible. And so, like, you know, Herman to me, like, was the illumination of you did it because it hurt too much not to. He made an effort because if you didn't, it hurt too much not to. And Jack Engler, he, you know, he'd been meditating for, I don't know how many years, had had insight and realization. He'd spent all his time practicing with Deepama. And with him, there was this quality of moving towards the light. You know, a kind of effortless moving towards the light a kind of grace, a balance moving towards the light. And so sometimes you do things because it hurts too much not to. And sometimes you just move towards the light in a graceful, effortless way. What is needed is to recognize that in every moment it can be different and need a different response. From one minute to the next minute, it's never the same. Sometimes one needs ferociousness and sometimes one needs absolute, incredible, gentle tenderness. Sometimes one needs to completely give up trying altogether. And sometimes one needs to bear down, stay with, persist, be tenacious, and not give up. So the journey to radical freedom requires a radical responsiveness to wake up to what's needed in the present moment and bring that forward. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.